Brethren, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me again to Psalm 103 as I uh, want to seek to finish that chapter. I began um, a number of weeks ago, and we will uh, read portions of it together as we go through. You know, it can be a very precarious situation to be wrong in our perception of how we think someone else feels towards us, right? So, for instance, if, if you're pulled over by a police officer and you gradually go over to the side of the road and you're thinking, what have I done? I, in those excruciating seconds as he makes his way up to you, you're thinking, what, where did I go wrong? What, what offense have I committed? I don't think I was speeding. I don't think I just ran a red light. What did I do? But you know you did something wrong because he pulled you over. But suppose he comes up to you, as happened to me recently, and he said, I noticed your brake light's out. And that is unsafe. And I want to make sure that you're safe as you travel. You need to fix that. You see, our perception of his intention was wrong. We thought he was coming to execute justice and he was coming to show kindness. Or uh, some of us men, many of us men, have had the experience where a young lady catches our attention, right? And all we can think about is getting the opportunity to date her, get to know her. But from our perception, it seems like she wants nothing to do with us. And this is the game that they play, I guess. I don't know. But it wants nothing to do with us. But when we finally get up the courage to ask her, we find out that she was just waiting for us to pursue her. You see, our perception, a wrong perception of how people view us, can have a major effect upon us. And now, if if in relatively small instances like that have an effect upon us, how much more, friends, I ask you, is it important not to be mistaken about how God views us? I think perhaps it is one of our greatest endeavors as Christians to wrap our mind around this question, how does God view me in light of Jesus Christ? Because to view God wrongly can be devastating for a Christian. It can be devastating. It can cause so many issues, including anger and resentment and depression and bondage and all manner of issues. And many times, friends, this goes back to the root cause of either ignorance of the truth or unbelief in the truth. And so my aim today is answering this. How does God relate to us as his covenant children? What does he think about me? I mean, how does he view me? How does he really view me in light of his son? How does he treat me at my worst and most undeserving moments? And what are the the blessings and the benefits of salvation? What does that really mean to me in daily life? And how does that affect me? Because the question then becomes, if we understand that, Are we living in light of what God has revealed to us regarding our relationship with him as our father? I mean, does does that revealed truth really affect our lives as it should? Do the deep realities of God's mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, his compassion really change us? Does it compel us to worship? Or is our discouragement and our difficulty and our insecurities and our grumblings come as a result of unbelief in what God has revealed to us, or at least a misapplication of God's kindness and love. 
Because it's so easy to end up with a wrong view of God and how he's how he deals with us. And that will have a monumental effect upon our lives. And I think in this chapter, in Psalm 103, the psalmist's goal is to ground us in all the glorious things that God has done for us and to explain why he treats us this way and to have, a, have us grounded in this one thing that we know, how, that we know how God is going to deal with us and how he feels towards us. Because God is not indifferent towards us. Amen? It's that we read that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So just a couple quick things before we get into the chapter. First, this psalm, brethren, comes, as we read before, in the, in the, a few weeks ago. This psalm comes from a person who is saturated in the grace of God. No one can pen these realities, let alone live them, without having a great work of grace in their life. And so this psalm, friends, is not a how-to. It's not a how-to It's not instruction about how to acquire the grace of God or any such thing. It's a how come passage. How come God deals with me like this? How come God treats me so graciously? Why does he show me such compassion? And then secondly, as as we looked at the first five verses last time, it seems like those verses were addressed to the writer's own heart, and the rest of the chapter is focused more broadly on the church and the redeemed race. So he first exhorts his own soul to bless the Lord for what he has done to him personally, and then he looks out at the people of God and says, this is how God deals with us. This is what he does, and let us bless him for that. And then finally, brethren, there are multiple ways that we could look at at a chapter like this. There are so many things here, and I'm just going to condense it, the rest of it, into one sermon, and there are different ways we could, do that, we could do that. But I've chosen the key of God's love to unlock the content here. I think this chapter is a revelation of God's love in various dimensions. And so that's how I've chosen to look at this. And I base that primarily on the, on the Hebrew word hesed, which is used three times in verses uh, 8, 11, and 17, I believe. It, it's, a, it's a word that from what I can understand, is, is an attempt to encapsulate all the God's fullness and goodness that he displays to believers. And so it's, it's used a number of times, and so I want to um, help us to see the demonstrations of God's multifaceted love for his people, and my hope is that it will cause us to rejoice in him and to worship him together. So first of all, I want us to see God's just Love. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. Look with me there in Psalm 103. We read, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He may known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Brethren, what we know of God and that what he has revealed to us is that God takes up the cause of the oppressed. God works justice for the oppressed, and he will undertake for them. And I just want to quickly clarify, because in our day this needs some clarification. The writer is not concerned with people who feel oppressed about their race or gender or or economic status. He's speaking of those who are persecuted, who are mistreated, who are treated unjustly, who are treated a certain way because of wicked people attempting to oppress them because of their righteousness. There are many abuses in this world, brethren, and there are many people who take advantage of those who are weak and vulnerable. And there are many afflictions that come upon us that are a result of the evil of other men and women. Persecutions 
and sufferings that are in some cases unspeakable. And yet what we read is that God is the one who fights especially for them. He is the one who works justice for them when everyone else may forget them or fail them. And brethren, we need to remember that even if God's justice takes longer than we would like for it to come about, he will not fail. We must remember that all wrongs shall be avenged. Every sin will be punished and justice will never be compromised because he will work justice for the oppressed. One commentator said it ought to be enough to take the sting out of whatever evil we suffer that we are under the eyes of the Lord and that at his own good time he will come to our help. Because isn't it true, brethren, for those who have endured affliction and difficulty that we as people are generally very quick to move past the catastrophic, catastrophic events of other people. We forget. We move on. It didn't happen to us. And so we move on. But those who are abused and neglected and take advantage, taken advantage of and forgotten, those who are cast aside by a fast-paced society and even by well-intentioned people are the very ones for whom God is most concerned. He will never, brethren, forsake the most vulnerable he will never compromise his justice. And if you are here especially, if you are here this morning, you are oppressed by trials and persecution of some type, if you are one who has endured abuse, you need to know most assuredly that even if all men forsake you, God will never neglect you or fail you. God will never abandon you. Not for one moment will he disregard you or overlook you or withhold his enduring, steadfast, and just love for you. He will take up your cause. Men and women may fail us. Friends and family may fail us. But God never will. This is the way of God. And he is not like mere man that he would neglect any of his precious children. And so we see God's just love. But then very quickly in verse 7, you notice also the goodness of God expressed in his self-revelation given to us in Scripture. You see, friends, when we're, when we're tempted to disbelieve the track record that we hear, we have record of God's covenant relationship with his people to go back to. He showed us how he was faithful in his promise to deliver his people after after hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt, and not just bringing them out, but he brought them safely to their destination in their promised land. And in our day, brethren, we have the totality, we have the privilege of having the totality of Scripture given to us, not only recounting the deeds that happened there in Exodus, as Moses recounted, but all the ways of God as he has dealt with his people and revealed himself. And so we see God's just love for us. And then, we see God's gracious love as we read in verses 8 through 11. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That word is the word hesed, a steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And this is a a glorious window into the heart of God that we have in this text. Here we find an anchor for our souls when when we're when we're it feels like we're free falling, like a like a wind, like a leaf in the wind, right? We we don't know where our bearings are. Here we can come and say, This much I know. I know this is how God deals with me. Because we find in this text that God's grace, God's love is expressed to us in his being slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now that reality, I think, is something that we definitely take for granted because we don't recognize, rightly, that God has, God has every right to be angry with us, righteously angry with us, every time we sin. He is the Holy One. He is the one who took upon himself to redeem us and ransom our souls from death. And even now, as as his children, we sin. We continue to sin. In the light of grace, we offend God. And yet we find that he is not easily angered. He is not quick to express anger and judgment. He is quick to express mercy and grace. Now, friend, if you're a Christian, you have to know how comforting that is. Because we continue to sin. And you know that there are people who run around like sin police, always looking for an error that they can point out, some fault that they can highlight and make a big deal about, or something like that. Always waiting and watching. But that's not how God is. He, he, He has every right to do that, but He is the opposite of that. We are recipients of such grace that in our failures and in our stumblings, it is so humbling to realize that God, even then, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to you, his child. We even read then that he does not chide, meaning he will not strive against us. He will not quarrel with us or contend with us. He will not deal with us according to our sins. He will not repay us according to our iniquities. We have a God of gracious love, of abounding in mercy and grace. And that word iniquity is different than the word sins. It means he will not repay us according to the penalty that we deserve for the sin that we chose to commit. He does not deal with us accordingly. And so, dear Christian, if you look upon God with, with an attitude of antagonism or you think your lot in life is, is extraordinarily difficult or that you're receiving somehow worse than you deserve, You must understand this, that God has not dealt with you as your worst iniquities or your most unintentional sins deserve. I mean, that much we have to own, that if God were to measure out justice to what our sins deserve, even the most minuscule thing, if he were to measure it out to us what we deserve, we would all be toast. But his gracious loving kindness is what we receive. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And so I ask, how do you respond to this? How do you live in light of this truth? I mean, first of all, we have to take hold of this by faith. It has to be a reality to us, right? That we don't see God as somehow looking for ways to hammer us in judgment. But rather, we need to live this out. And I would ask you, 
Why are you discouraged? Is it because you are misguided about how God is looking at you? I mean, do you know, friend, that at the cross we find full forgiveness, that in being justified, we are, being, we are made right with God forever? Do you walk in, in continual defeat for some reason, thinking that God is striving against you or angry with you for something you have done and repented of? Friends, if we have brought our sins to the cross and we have repented of our sins and we have found grace, we need to be done with our past sin. And the question then would be why? Why is God so forgiving of our sin? Why does he, why does he take it all away from us? And the answer is look at verse 11. His love for you is immeasurable. It's described in dimensions that are even beyond description that man cannot comprehend how great his love for us. And that, my friend, is why God sent his son to take your sins. He is a God of extraordinary mercy and grace. So great is his love for you that you cannot grasp it by comparing the greatest Thing you can imagine. You cannot comprehend it. And every time, dear saint, every time you sin and you recognize that he is not dealing with you according to your sin, you are experiencing the gracious love of God. Now next, we see God's forgiving love. Here in verse 12. And this ties in with what I just said, but we need to say more. So look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Dear Christian, in, in light of the cross, in light of the cross, your sins are not just taken and put into a closet to be used against you again. They are completely removed from your life. Forever. Forgiven, wiped away. Now the, the question then is, do you live like that is true? Are you living like that? Because I am convinced that, that a person who knows their sin is truly forgiven, who knows that, that they have no more condemnation, cannot help but express praise and gratitude to God. You cannot be freed from an incomparable burden of sin and be nonchalant about it. There, it is impossible you cannot be nonchalant about that any more than you would be after you were released from prison, after spending 20 or 40 or 60 years. And you know, all of us, all of us as believers have experience in serving time in that prison where misery abounds, where guilt is, is a burden upon us, and where we live in nothing but the consequences of our own sin. And we as Christians, we know the freedom of being set free from that dreadful sentence. And brethren, I'm asking you, are you demonstrating that to be a reality in your life? That you have been set free, knowing that all your sins are forgiven. That's going to propel you into worshiping God. Because no, no one needs to persuade a true Christian to worship God and to love Him. It will be just an overflow of his heart because he recognizes something of the forgiving love of God. You will walk in joy, friends, 
knowing that your sins no longer weigh upon your conscience. You're going to grow in humility because you will view yourself as guilty as the worst of sinners. And friends, you're no longer going to be anchored to the past because you're going to find that God has removed the stain of sin and the shame of our past no longer defines us. I mean, just think. Think of how great our sin was. I mean, it piled up before God like the worst stench of sin you can imagine. If you were to compare it to weight, it would be a a mountain of granite that was upon our backs that we tried to groan under. If we were to compare it to to size, it would be this world-sized mass of garbage. It would be the most vile and foul thing we can imagine. If we could compare it to time, it would have taken an eternity of eternities of trying to pay for this sin, but no payment would suffice. And all we would be left with is one reminder after another of our rejection of Christ. Now think of the power and the work of Christ on your behalf. He has taken your sin away. Surely He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? But He is also the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. He's taken away your sin. Don't lose what He has done for you. He has taken the unbearable weight of God's wrath upon Himself. It was aimed like a freight train for your soul to annihilate you forever. In punishment... And he drank down the dregs of all that poisonous stench of your sin. He took the eternal punishment and you bear it no more. All sin. All sin for the Christian. No matter how small an infraction and no matter how heinous it was, is removed from us forever. Glory be to God for verse 12. He has removed our sin, not in part, but the whole It's been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. We bear it no more. And if that were not enough, we need to say more. God does not remind us of our sin when we fail again. He's removed it from us. It's stain, it's punishment, and we even read that it's memory is removed. We read there in Jeremiah 31, where he's speaking of the new covenant, God said, "I, I will remember their sin no more. It does not mean that there are not consequences. That should be obvious. We know that. But we're speaking about our acceptance before God and for the sin that He washed us of in the blood of Christ, there is no condemnation. Amen? Now think. How does that play out in your life? When the sin of your past rises up to accuse you and tries to to chain your soul down, into the prison of despair, to keep you there, you must know that is not a work of God, but the plan of the enemy. Because no sin will ever rise up against you in judgment if you have repented of it and turned away from it. Only the devil likes to bring up our past. God has removed it. He's cast it as far away as possible. So far, in fact, that it will never be found and used as evidence against us. And in that, we find reason for joy. And we glory in God's forgiving love. But I want to make this abundantly clear. The sin that I am speaking of 
as being removed is only the sin of which we have confessed and repented of and forsaken. God never comforts us in our sin. He removes it when we repent of it. And there is no condemnation again. So God's forgiving love. But then fourthly, we see God's compassionate love. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. What another amazing revelation of the heart of God in this passage. He's showing us in terms that we can understand something of his heart to us. And the purpose is that we might know him and find comfort in him as a child would find comfort in knowing that his father is genuine and caring and loving. Friend, do you know, do you really know God's heart to you, towards you? Do you really know that he is a God of great compassion? Because there is a constant push by the enemy to, to, to make us look at God as some kind of a harsh and unloving God who withholds good and has little compassion and is easily frustrated with our weakness. But that's not why we, that's not what we find here. Look, look at the comparison. As a father. Now, I recognize that for some, that's not a very helpful comparison because we have maybe had a father who is not compassionate at all. But what God is doing here is attempting to show us in terms that we can understand something of his heart towards us. The children and and young people, I want to say something to you that might be helpful to you about your earthly father because because sometimes um, as men, we have a very difficult time putting deep truths into easy-to-understand sentences. But I, for, for the children here, for the men that I know, your father loves you and shows great compassion for you in various ways. And he's attempting in ways that that cannot be verbalized to show you his, the depth of his love. He tries in various ways to express it in words. And God finds that the best parallel to show this aspect of his love is a father's love. And so we need to remember, all of us, especially children, that our father shows compassion to us by remembering that we are young and in need of much guidance. And God does the same. Our Father showed compassion to us by not being harsh when we fail and don't meet His expectations. And God does the same. Our Father shows us compassion by remembering that we are weak and helpless and in need of Christ. And your Father, children, your Father knows His need of Christ. And so He remembers your need of Christ. And he shows you a lot of compassion because he knows that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You see, friends, all of us, all of us, whether or not we have a good relationship with our earthly father or not, we are all adopted children of our heavenly father. And we want to see pictures 
of how God relates to us among ourselves. See, friends, we're, we're all mere men. We're, we're as, as fathers, we're, right? We're all just mere men, but we feel compassion. We, we see children, especially our own children, who are fearful. And so we want to wrap them in a hug and let them know that it's okay. We see children struggling, and we see a little Christian with his cancer, and we, we feel compassion, and we want to help, and we wrap our arms around them in any way that we can. And we are mere men. How much greater is God's compassion to us? We as sinful people have compassion to our children, and yet God says to those who fear me, I will show compassion. He is not harsh. He is not demanding things that we cannot possibly fulfill. And I want to ask if you know that the heart of God towards you is a compassionate heart, a God who is showing his compassion specifically by remembering our frame. He knows our bodies. He knows our weakness. He knows that we are feeble and we grow weary in service to him. He knows that we're like a flower of the field. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. The wind blows over us. It's nothing. No resistance at all, hardly. And we're gone. We can't even withstand it. Even the strongest people will be gone in a few decades. And he knows. He knows that your spirit is willing. And he knows that your flesh is so weak. He knows that our emotions are sanctified, but they're still seared by sin. He knows that we react in certain ways that are not right. And he has compassion towards us. He knows that our judgment, though growing by grace, is still prone to faults and errors. But in that, he is compassionate towards us. He is not a God who exacts harsh harsh punishments as a dad would not go to his child and spank him unendingly for accidentally pulling out one weed as he weeded the entire garden. So brethren, we have a God whose whose compassionate heart is manifest to us in so many ways, and every comparison is a failed attempt to grasp what he has for us in this sense. Matthew Henry said, All the compassion of all the tender fathers in the world compared to the tender mercies of God would be but as a candle to the sun or a drop in the ocean. So we know but but the outskirts of his ways. But I want to ask you before we leave this, if we are freely giving to others what we have received from God. So dads, are you giving your children a good example of what God's heart is like to them? Are you showing them compassion? Husbands and wives, are you compassionate with one another in your weaknesses? Has not God shown you much compassion? Doesn't God have reason to be agitated with with you? Are you showing compassion to your spouse? And all of us, as a church, are we showing compassion to one another? Other than the family, I think the local church is, is where much of our sanctification takes place. And it's so easy to find the newest member and love them well. But those of us who know each other more and we see our sins and we interact with one another year after year, may the compassion that God has shown us drive us to show much compassion to each other as we relate. So God's compassionate love. And then let's look lastly at God's everlasting love. Verse 17 and 18. 
Verse 17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Now, I I think here's the crux of the entire chapter. And here we see David hitting the bullseye of why God is so good to us and to all of his children. And it is the steadfast love of God. I just want to note three or four things here about God's love. First of all, notice the conjunction, right? He says, but he has just un- he has just said that God understands our feeble frame and that our lives are so fleeting. We're here today and gone tomorrow. And to the unredeemed, it's, it might seem so short, so hopeless, but that's where David pivots to the contrast and said, but the steadfast love of the Lord is of an entirely different type. It is not temporary. It is not momentary. It is eternal. And his love is to be enjoyed forever. And the everlasting love of God is contrasted by our feeble life and our, our short length of life. But it's not the end of enjoying God's love. It shall endure forever. For all of eternity, we will have the fullness and joy of experiencing in all of its glory the unending satisfaction of the love of God. Now the word I mentioned earlier, but the word, the second thing I want to just point out is the word that the ESV translates steadfast love is the word hesed, which is used three times, and it's meant to describe, I believe, the full range of God's actions towards us. And if you look at this word and, and how translators have, translators have dealt with it, 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 it seems like they're wrestling with how to communicate in English what is really meant here. The King James Version says the mercy of God. The NASB uses the loving kindness of God. Other words that are used are goodness and and kindness and faithfulness. It it actually, in one meaning, could mean an act of love, so that all that God is showing us is just an act of love. It's His unchanging love. It's all that God is. And you can see how people have wrestled with this because they don't know which word captures best the goodness of God, his mercy and love and all that he is. Because brethren, you know that our word love is so cheap, right? Like it it doesn't mean anything today. But this is helpful because it, it it helps us recognize that it's not some feeling of warmth. It's not God's, you know, putting his arms around us. It is the entirety of God's being, his grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and forgiveness and more all being poured out in great measures upon his people for eternity. And that includes you, dear saint. I said before that God came to redeem a fallen race, but he came to seek individual sinners. We don't want to lose ourselves in the midst of the crowd and think that God loves the church, but he doesn't love us. So I just want to ask you to consider the everlasting love that God has for you. Have you dwelt upon this recently? Has it filtered through your mind in a meditative way that his, his love is perfect and everlasting and you have always enjoyed his love? Most of us can remember our childhood. We can remember recognizing as a young child our parents' love we remember, right, the, the, the security of knowing that, that our parents are near and they're going to protect us and they're going to care for us and, and we felt loved by them. 
But there is a beginning to that. Many of us know we can hearken back to when we began to realize that our spouse, the one who I was going to marry, really loves me. She loves me. And it's, 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 it's expressed in, in selfless acts and, and sacrifice toward me. And I recognize that it's, it's an experience of beginning to know that love. But with those things, there was a beginning. There was a time when we realized it's true. But not with God's love. There was never a beginning to his love. There was never a time when God in his infinite knowledge of you did not love you. Now some would say, what about my lost days? What about when I was unsaved? When I was, when I was in rebellion against God? When I was committing vile acts of sin? Did he love me then? You see, brethren, in, in even his love was set upon you. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. Even in your sin, he was drawing you to himself. He was showing you mercy and kindness. He was not dealing with you as your sins deserve. Kindness after kindness after kindness was given to you, all undeserved. No, God did not love you since you were saved or since you entered the narrow gate of eternal life. It was because he loved you that you are saved. And it was because he loved you first that you love him at all. And it was because that he loved you that he came after you in your sin. Otherwise, you would be still lost in your sin. And it would be an eternally lostness where you would never experience his everlasting love. Now think, dear Christian, there was never, ever a moment in your life where you were not loved by the, your father. Through your most delicate time of infancy, when you were most vulnerable, God loved you. He cared for you. He watched over you. In your teenage years, when it may have been marked by, by who knows what, maybe waywardness or sometimes rebellion, when you were so informative, so, so bent towards other things, God was still showing you his everlasting kindness, his loving kindness. Throughout all the sinfulness, throughout all the years of neglect of God, when you showed no love for him or no concern for his glory, he still loved you. And if he loved you through your worst suffering and isolation, he will continue to love you. And you will never, ever be forgotten. Is it not humbling to think that, that we were so dearly loved by God even in the most undeserving moments of life? I mean, have we not read there that while we were sinners, Christ died for us? The greatest act of love? And doesn't that show you, again, that we have what we have received from God is completely undeserved? No merit in this love. I know I don't deserve it. It's simply grace that I would experience this for any amount of time, let alone my entire existence. And so I ask you again, what of now? Do you still realize that you don't deserve the love of God? And how does that play out for you in day-to-day -day life? Some of us think, yeah, but how can he love me when I just said what I said yesterday to that person? How can he love me when that, that thought, 
was so prevalent in my mind. How can he love me when I've been so lazy and so passive in my walk with him? Surely he must be frustrated with me at the very least. And dear Christian, I would just ask you, when have you ever done anything to deserve God's love? I mean, that's the whole point. We don't deserve his kindness, yet he bestows it upon us in immeasurable amounts of mercy and grace. And if he loves us as a gift of grace, a free gift of grace, then he will not remove it from us because of our failures. Beloved Christian, as long as God lives, you will be loved by him. As long as he lives, he chose you in eternity past and he will continue, you will continue to experience his immeasurable love for all of eternity to come. And his promise is unchangeable and unconditional. You you read there in 1 John 3, he said, see what manner of love this is that we have become the children of God. And such we are, he says, such we are. So, Christian, this helps us. I mean, does it not help you to live in joy and peace and security because God will not remove his seal of love for you? Not because we have attained some standard of spirituality or we sound a certain way or because we've done a certain thing, but because we are covenanted to him by the blood of his son. And friend, let me tell you again, this absolutely will have an impact on your life. Grasping this will make your soul happy. Grasping this and believing this, it will fill your soul with love for God and worship of Him. It will draw out your affections to Him. You will love Him for all that He has done for you. And it will be evident in your life. And then quickly notice His conquering love. His conquering love. Verse 18 says to those, who, who is this for, right? 17, it says, on those who fear him. So this steadfast love of the Lord is for those who fear him and who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So can anyone claim this love? Does God love everyone the same? No, we have to recognize the transformative evidences that mark this experienced loving kindness of God. And the evidence, the transformation is that they fear him, they keep his covenant, and they obey his commands. If you have experienced God's love for you, then he has conquered your heart. And if he has conquered your heart, you will display that in fearing him and walking in obedience to him. Lives are completely transformed when this mercy is experienced. Not just changing a few things to clean it up and look a little bit better. A noted change in our disposition. Our hearts are changed from being indifferent towards him to fearing him. We go from being careless about his word to being careful to obey it out of love. And we long to be holy. We long to to honor him, to put away sin, to put on Christ. The person whose heart has been conquered by God's love does not speak of begrudging obedience or hesitant law-keeping or of burdensome commands. No, this person speaks of living a life of love and devotion and worship, fearing him and obeying him because they love him. 
And friends, here is where you see the power of a greater affection. When God's love con- conquers your heart, your, desires to please, your desire to please Him is so strong that it compels you into a path of righteousness. Friends, there is such power in the love of God, transformative power to kill sin, to live in obedience, not out of obligation, none of that, but out of true love and gratitude to serve this God who would love me with his everlasting love. And so, beloved Christian, I say again, your greatest need is to know the love of God for you. It will conquer your heart. It will fill you with joy. It will fill you with gratitude and humility and ultimately with worship. Because God has manifest such love to you, especially in the person of his son. I just have three quick practical things to wrap up and we're through. There are so many people sitting in churches today who are only there to pacify their conscience. Realities like this don't impress them. Their indifference is their response, not worship. But friends, we've not come here to feel better about ourselves or to check a box or to do any such thing. We've come here to worship God. And we say with the psalmist, this is the result of all of these things, verse 20 to 22. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord in all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That is the response. Worship is the response of a person who has experienced the multifaceted love of God. And I pray that's all our response is today. That's all of our response. But secondly, I mentioned it briefly, but we have here examples of how we should seek to treat one another. Brethren, surely we have experienced God's love for us in being slow to anger. Surely we have experienced his love for us in in compassion. And we've obviously experienced his love in forgiveness. And if it is our goal, as it rightly is, to be conformed to the image of Christ, then what better place for this to happen than in the church? And here we find opportunity for these things to take place. For us to express these things to one another because we have received them from God. And so I ask you, Are we growing in Christ-likeness in these things? Are we slow to anger? Are we expressing a quickness and a willingness to forgive? Are we compassionate rather than impatient? And I would pray that God would help us in our ability to reflect to others what God has done. But then lastly, I just want to say to the unbeliever, I know that you may hear these things and find no consolation for your soul. You, You don't respond in worship. You find no refuge in God. And I know that because you flee from God. You resist the Spirit's conviction. You, you want to be away from such a place like this. You may sleep through the sermon and sleep through life and try to dull your, the screaming conscience that you have that you're one day going to stand before God, but you can't do it. And one day, dear friend, one day you're going to wake up from this sin-loving slumber. And I don't want that to be the first day of your eternal existence in hell. 
May you have eyes to see that there is one Savior for sinners, that there is one hope for mankind to be saved, and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm pleading with you, if you are here as an unbeliever, and I don't know who you are, don't reject Christ again. Don't go through another day of rejecting Christ's invitation. One day you're going to wake up in hell and realize it's too late, and realize that week after week, after opportunity after opportunity, you rejected Christ in the name of hollow religion, and it will do nothing for you. It will do nothing for you. So don't spurn his grace by thinking that at some point, at some day down the road, you're going to get things right. The Bible is consistent and clear. Today is the day of salvation. Today. And so Christ calls. Christ says, and he, he comes and he says, Everyone who thirsts, come to me. Come, who, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And so I say, Christ is a willing Savior. Amen? Do we not find that Christ is willing to save all of us when we come to him? And if you're here as an unbeliever, you can look around and see plenty of examples of people who came to Christ and found him very willing to save. May that be your response.